0: This is Read Japanese Literature. My name is Allison Fincher. Read Japanese Literature is a podcast about Japanese fiction and some of its best works. All the works we discuss are available in translation, so you can read along if you want, and you can find out more at readjapaneseliterature.com. When I teased this episode, I'd planned to talk about Lafcadio Hearn, Hearn is a highly influential Greek-British-American man who moved to Japan in the late 1800s and published beloved collections of ghost stories. But then I started thinking about the evolution of ghost stories in Japan and realized how many older written sources there are that I'd really like to cover first. So today, a raging intellectual debate, a supernatural party game, and a friend just dying to keep his promises— We're talking about Ueda Akinari and his Tales of Moonlight and Rain, some of the most influential Japanese ghost stories ever written. There was once a man named Katsushiro. He was married to Miyagi, a woman of arresting beauty, intelligence, and steady disposition. When Katsushiro decided to travel to the capital on business, Miyagi begged him not to. With no one to depend on, she said, my woman's heart will know the extremities of sadness, wandering as if lost in the fields and mountains. Katsushiro didn't listen. He just reassured his wife that he would be back in the fall. But summer came and political instability swept through the whole prefecture. Most of his neighbors fled. His wife stayed behind, counting on him to keep his promise. All told, Katsushiro didn't return home for seven years. And when he finally returned home, he did so blaming himself for his own faithless heart. When Katsushiro finally made it back to his village, it was abandoned and overrun with weeds. Except for his own home. Dim light filtered through a gap in the door. And there stood his wife. He embraced Miyagi as she shed silent tears, and she forgave him. I endured many bitter experiences. With pines at the eaves, I waited vainly in this house, foxes and owls as my companions, until today. I am happy now that my long resentment has been dispelled. No one can know the resentment of one who dies longing. And the two lay down together. In the morning, Katsushiro was awoken by water dripping on his nose. The house had fallen into disrepair overnight. One remaining elderly villager finally explained to him what had happened. Katsushiro's virtuous wife had died many years ago. The villager himself had buried her. Together, the two men visited her burial mound, raised their voices in lamentation, and passed the night invoking the Buddha's name. This story, The Reed choked House, comes from Ueda Akinari's story collection, Tales of Moonlight and Rain. I want to tell you about Akinari in two parts. The second part of our story today is the evolution of the ghost story genre, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. We'll start with the first, an intellectual rivalry at the heart of late Edo, Japan. In earlier episodes of this podcast, we've looked at the influence of Chinese culture and language on Japanese culture and language. For example, the characters in the Tale of Genji admire Chinese poetry and calligraphy. Buddhism also came to Japan through China, and we've discussed in the Tale of the Heike and in Setsuwa how Buddhism, especially Chinese Buddhism, has been central to Japanese literature. How it has been key to Japanese ethics and aesthetics. For most of Japan's history, the study of Japanese history and literature went more or less hand in hand with the study of Chinese history and literature, although Chinese history and literature often had a little bit more cultural cachet. But during the 18th century, the narrative changed. Instead of accepting whatever came east from China, scholars began to question whether the Japanese should continue accepting elements of culture from the outside, or whether they should try to recover an idealized native tradition. Kangaku, or Chinese studies, began as a heavily Buddhist-centric field. But by the Edo period, the focus had shifted to Neo-Confucianism. I don't want to spend a lot of time here on Confucianism or Neo-Confucianism, so here's a really quick summary. Confucius was a Chinese philosopher and ethicist born around 551 BCE. Confucius and the men who followed him stressed the five cardinal relationships, lord to subject, father to son, husband to wife, elder brother to younger brother, and friend to friend. A son's respect for his father, filial piety, brought stability to society as a whole. Neo-Confucianism, New Confucianism, developed in China during the Tang Dynasty. That's the 7th to 10th centuries, roughly overlapping with the Heian period of Japanese history. Chinese scholars use Confucianism as a foundation for what they presented as a more rational, humanistic, secular philosophy, a philosophy that rejected Buddhist and Taoist influences. One of Neo-Confucianism's central claims is that the universe can be understood through human reason, and it's man's duty to create a harmonious relationship between himself and the universe. Neo-Confucianism came to Japan during the Kamakura period, the period of the tale of the Heike. But it wasn't until the Edo period, 1604 to 1867, that Neo-Confucianism became a dominant school of thought in Japan. The Tokugawa shoguns liked Neo-Confucianism. For one, it checked the power of Buddhist temples and Buddhist cultural hegemony. Any central power in Tokugawa, Japan, was perceived as a threat by the shogunate. Neo-Confucianism also provided an answer to an important question of the Edo period. What do you do with a warrior class, like the samurai, when there's no war? Neo-Confucianism provided a framework to bring together filial piety, the relationship between father and son, and a relationship between a ruler and the people he ruled. The big and famous samurai preoccupation with loyalty is very tied up in Neo-Confucianism. Just a quick side note, Neo-Confucianism under the Tokugawa shogunate led to a real low point for women's rights in Japan. Women of this period were expected to follow the three obediences, First an obedience to her father as an obedient daughter, second to her husband as his chaste wife, and then third to her son as a widow dedicated to her family. But as I've mentioned before, Japan isn't the only place in the world where the 18th and 19th centuries were a low point for women's rights. Think about the works of Jane Austen and the ways English women couldn't inherit or legally take care of themselves. So in contrast to all of this, Confucian studies, Chinese studies, stood an emerging Japanese tradition called kokugaku, literally country studies. Instead of west to an idealized China, kokugaku looked backward to an imagined ancient Japan. Kokugaku scholars tended to look in ancient Japanese texts for a uniquely Japanese spirit or tradition. The Confucian line on stories was that they should encourage good and chastise evil. Kokugaku scholars rejected this kind of moralism, especially when the morals being applied were from what they considered a foreign tradition. Kokugaku also criticized the rationalism of Confucianism and reasserted the importance of feeling and intuition. This feeling and intuition were supposed to be part of Japan's cultural heritage. And you could almost compare this conflict to the English Romantics' reaction against the rationalism of the Enlightenment. I should note that the purest forms of kokugaku are, of course, impossible. You can't simply return to an imagined past without the influence of other cultures. Though that's not to say there's no value in the attempt— And although many people have conflated kokugaku with nationalism, the two don't precisely overlap. For one, nationalism, or at least the belief that the Japanese were a superior race, was a matter of course, a fact taken for granted by educated Japanese in the 18th and 19th centuries. For another thing, kokugaku scholars also differed on exactly how much they rejected of outside culture. Regardless, it's Kokugaku scholars who are responsible for the ways many modern readers think about ancient Japanese texts. For example, although the tale of Genji had always been of paramount cultural importance, Kokugaku scholars also made it into an object of scholarly study. A kokugaku scholar named Moritori Norinaga claimed Genji demonstrates a certain sorrow at evanescence. That is supposed to be at the heart of Japanese literature. And it's thanks to Norinaga and other kokugaku scholars that modern readers have access to the Kojiki, one of the oldest written texts in Japanese, and the subject of this podcast's first episode— you may remember that the Kojiki is the mytho-historical Japanese creation story. Moritori Norinaga used the Kojiki to construct his understanding of the way of the kami. and In Japanese, the way of the kami is Shinto. Some historians don't regard Shinto as a distinct religion at all, until Kokugaku scholars shaped its practice. After the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s, Kokugaku helped justify the emperor's supposed return to power. It became one of the founding ideologies of the Japanese Empire, and it was remembered in some of its more extreme forms. Meiji-era intellectuals tended to focus on four of the most single-minded Kokugaku scholars and ignore some of its more moderate voices. Kokugaku is still a living tradition. Today, the theories we associate with kokugaku are more frequently grouped together under the term Nihonjinron, or theories of japanese If you consume anime or manga, you've almost certainly come across attitudes about Japan associated with Nihonjinron, namely that there are things that make Japan special and different from any other country. Nihon jin has a lot in common with American exceptionalism. Now we have the first half of our two-part story in place, the rivalry between Chinese and Japanese scholarship. We'll turn next to the second half, the rise of the Japanese ghost story. In Edo, Japan, a group of friends would collect as night fell. In one room, the friends would light 100 paper and bamboo lanterns called andon and place a lone mirror on a small table. When the sky was dark, the guests would take turns telling scary stories of supernatural encounters. After each story was over, the teller would extinguish one of the lanterns, look into the mirror, and return to their friends. By the 100th tale, they had helped create a safe haven for spirits. As you might guess, many games stopped after the 99th tale. This game was known as Hyaku Managotari Kaidanki, or the Gathering of 100 Supernatural Tales, and it's the origin of the term Kaidan, or ghost stories. The oldest written versions of what became Kaidan are probably the Setsuwa we discussed in an earlier episode. Setsuwa, you may recall, literally means spoken story, sometimes translated as tale literature, and it originated from Buddhist preaching traditions. Setsuwa are brief, presented as true or possibly true, and many of them show off their Buddhist heritage. Ghosts take vengeance against the people who wronged them in life— or they get stuck as ghosts because of their inappropriate attachment to the world. Other Setsuwa don't show off their Buddhist heritage. We've talked about Tales of Times Now Past. It's an important foundational text for Japanese ghost stories because some of the stories divorce religious teaching from the narratives themselves. In medieval Japan, setsuwa were widely enjoyed as spoken and written narratives. Now, when you are afraid you may die in the chaos of war, ghost stories might be a little less appealing. The Edo period, on the other hand, brought an end to the Warring States period and brought with it 250 years of peace and invited what Japanese folklorist Zach Davison calls a renaissance of the weird. The printing press played a role too. It contributed to that renaissance because it changed what people read and how they read it. Early print books, like the works we discussed in the last episode, the works of Ihara Saikaku, were often heavily illustrated. But by the mid-18th century, readers wanted yomi-hon, literally reading books. And these books were books where the written story took precedence for the first time over those illustrations or over books intended to be narrated aloud. Yomihon are also different from the Yukio Zoshi we discussed in the last episode, or Tales of the Floating World, because they turn away from the everyday depicted in the writing of people like Ihara Saikaku. Many yomihon are characterized by Confucian idealism and didacticism. To meet demand for these yomihon, publishers turned to Japanese translations of Chinese novels like Water Margin. These would have been written in vernacular Chinese and probably published in China about the 15th century. Maybe surprisingly, kokugaku scholars were engaged in writing yomihon as well. Through these stories, Kokugaku scholars could reimagine a past in Japan not dominated by China, even though the original stories on which some of them based their work were Chinese. People also wanted to buy Yomihon full of stories they could show off during these gatherings of 100 tales. They wanted collections of Kaidan. The biggest name in Kaidan is probably Ueda Akinari whose most famous work was published in the 1770s. We'll come back to him in just a minute. But after Akinari in the late 19th and 20th centuries, various scholars turned to collecting kaidan as a way to preserve traditional Japanese culture. Today, the term kaidan has a decidedly old-fashioned feel. Japanese horror stories like The Ring are labeled Hora from the English, or koi hanashi. Scary stories. So, how does the rivalry between Chinese studies and Kokugaku come together with ghost stories to create a masterpiece? Let me finally introduce you to Ueda Akinari and his Tales of Moonlight and Rain. Ueda Akinari was born in 1734. And that makes him roughly contemporary with Austrian composer Joseph Haydn, Russian Empress Catherine the Great, King Toscan the Great, who helped unify Siam, and U.S. President George Washington. Ueda Akinari was probably the son of an Osaka prostitute and one of her clients. It doesn't seem like Akinari ever knew who his biological father was. Some recent scholarship suggests he was the grandson of a samurai. When he was four, he was adopted into the family of an Osaka merchant, the Ueda's. A childhood disease, probably smallpox, left him with a deformed left hand, and he seems to have been self-conscious about it for the rest of his life. For example, he published tales of moonlight and rain under the pseudonym Senshikijin, which means something like "cripple with deformed fingers." As a young man, Akinari wrote some of the last popular yukio Zoshi, those tales of the floating world, but he soon encountered Kokugaku, and through Kokugaku, classical Japanese scholarship and literature. Some of Akinari's contemporaries, like Motoori Norinaga, followed what they called the school of pure and uncontaminated Japanese spirit. Akinari was not a pure and uncontaminated Kokugaku scholar. He loved Chinese vernacular novels, and he loved tea. He recognized that tea was an imported tradition that added beauty and enjoyment to his life. And although Akinari usually gets grouped with kokugaku scholars, he didn't even use the term kokugaku to describe his own beliefs. He preferred the term wagaku. Wa, or peace, is a traditional word for native Japanese things. Japanese food is washoku, Japanese-style rooms are washitsu. This is what Akinari wrote about his moderated view of the relationship between Chinese and Japanese culture. Our nation's Confucian scholars immoderately place their faith in the teachings of Western lands, believing that all truth springs from them. And when he says Western lands here, he essentially means continental Asia. Nonetheless, there is much to gain from these countries, just as we have much to be proud of in our own nation. It has been our good fortune to have had contact with these nations and exchanged many blessings with them. This is no doubt due to the blessings of the imperial ancestors and deities. The man who most recently translated Tales of Moonlight and Rain into English, translator Anthony Chambers, describes Akinari as a classic example of the 18th century Japanese literatus. Quote, A nonconformist, independent artist, typically a painter and writer, who, though not a member of the aristocracy, devoted himself or herself to high culture, stood aloof from commercial or political profit, and felt disdain for the vulgarity of contemporary society. I should note, though, that Akinari never made his living as a writer— He inherited his father's business, where he dutifully worked until it burned down. He then spent some time working as a doctor. And then late in life, he lost his eyesight and lived off the kindness of his friends. Tales of Moonlight and Rain was published when Akinari was in his early 40s, and it embodies Akinari's moderated attitude, his admiration for both Chinese and Japanese culture. It's a collection of nine stories drawn from Chinese and Japanese sources. That isn't to say that Akinari's work is derivative. The idea that a story can be derivative at all is a fairly modern one, in many global literatures, including Japanese. And we still find comfort and fun in adapting stories, letting them grow and change with time. Think about the global popularity of superhero movies, or. Remakes in general. In Edo Japan, in particular, stories had extra value if they started out as Chinese originals. The stories and tales of Moonlight and Rain are something more than just retellings or even adaptations. Akinari completely recasts the stories so they belong in the Japanese historical past. He also makes the stories thoroughly Japanese by changing the style, weaving in references to Japanese images and texts. You can see the influence of Akinari's Kokugaku studies in Tales of Moonlight and Rain in a few ways. The vocabulary and the phrasing reflect Japanese classics like the Kojiki and the Tale of Genji. Unfortunately, As Chambers notes in his translator's introduction, that nuance is a little difficult to capture in translation. The project of treating ghost stories seriously also aligns nicely with the kokugaku impulse to honor things that are beyond human understanding. Finally, Akinari's retellings move the center of interest. One scholar describes the focus in the Chinese stories as identifying the relationship between human beings and other beings. It's a kind of taxonomical effort. In contrast, Akinari's work highlights the inner nature of the characters, the feeling and intuition that are supposed to be Japan's heritage. I want to finish today by looking at one more of the stories in Tales of Moonlight and Rain a story that really nicely demonstrates the ideas we've been talking about today. It's a story called The Chrysanthemum Vow. The story of The Chrysanthemum Vow is partially adapted from a Chinese story, and I hope you'll forgive my appalling pronunciation of Chinese. The title is Fan Qi Jing's Eternal Friendship, and it's from old and new stories published in China in the early 17th century. Akinari transforms this story into a tale of samurai loyalty and love. The story begins this way Lush and green is the willow in spring. Do not plant it in your garden. In friendship, do not bond with a shallow man. Although the willow comes to leaf early, will it withstand the first winds of autumn? The shallow man is quick to make friends and is quick to part. Year after year, The willow brightens in the spring, but a shallow man will not visit again. In the late 1460s, the Warring States period opened with the Onin Wars. Local leaders challenged distant warlords for control of the countryside. About 65 miles west of Kyoto lived a Confucian scholar named Hasebe Samon, who lived with his elderly mother. One day he visited a friend at a nearby inn where he was surprised to hear moaning from the next room. The friend explained that he had found a traveler who was lost and feverish, and the friend had given the traveler a room. Saman wanted to check on the traveler, but his friend objected. He had heard that fevers could spread from person to person. Saman counters, What disease will spread to another person? It is the ignorant who say such things. Over his friend's objections, Sama nursed the stranger back to health as though he were his own brother. When the stranger recovered, he introduced himself as Akana Soeman, a samurai caught up in recent political chaos. As he recovered, the two men discovered that their thoughts and feelings were in harmony on every subject, and the two men were filled with mutual admiration and joy. Eventually, Soemon had to leave, but he promised to return before the end of autumn on the day of the Chrysanthemum Festival. Someone counted the days and prepared for his friend's return, but the day of the Chrysanthemum Festival arrived with no sign of Soemon. Soemon waited all day, and just as he was going to give up waiting and retire for the night, he saw his friend by the light of the Milky Way. Suleiman quietly refused Saman's hospitality and eventually explained, I am not a man of this world. A filthy ghost has taken this form to briefly appear before you. He tells Saman that he had been imprisoned all summer and wasn't going to be able to escape and keep his promise. Finally, desperate to see his friend, he fell on his sword and traveled on the wind to bid Saman farewell. The next day, Saman began a journey to where Soemon had been held prisoner. He hoped to bury Soemon's body. When Saman arrived, he lectured Soimon's samurai captor. A samurai does not concern himself with the vicissitudes of rank and fortune. He values only loyalty. Saman killed Soemon's captor and escaped. Truly, the story ends. One must not form bonds with a shallow man. Now, in the Chinese story, no one holds the protagonist prisoner. He is so preoccupied with business that he simply misses the promised meeting. His surviving friend kills himself at Fan's tomb. But here, only captivity, physical restraint, can make a samurai break his word. And Salman demonstrates his loyalty by refusing to let Soemon's enemy go unpunished. Finally, Akinari's version also speaks to idealized male-male love in the samurai community. The story certainly has some homoerotic overtones. The chrysanthemum blossom was a common symbol of homosexual intercourse because the blossom resembles an anus. And a chrysanthemum vow is a euphemism for a sexual encounter between two men. So why are we still reading Kaidan? For one, who doesn't love a good ghost story? But maybe more importantly, ghost stories are still hugely important in modern Japanese literature and culture. Zach Davison asserts that most of Japan's ghost stories known today come from the Edo period. And he goes on to say that these ghost stories, quote, still form the spine of Japanese horror storytelling. For example, a famous ghost story inspired Ring by Koji Suzuki, which later spawned Japanese and English-language horror films. There's a link to that story, Okiku, on the website. Another notable example is Where the Wild Ladies Are by Aoko Matsuda, translated into English by Polly Barton. I also mentioned Where the Wild Ladies Are in episode 5 about Japanese setsuwa. Matsuda bases her linked short stories on classic Japanese tales, many of which are ghost stories. For example, we talked about the tale of the woman Kiyohime and the monk Anshin in an earlier episode, that Setsuwa evolved into Edo period picture books and kabuki plays, and it went on to inspire one of Matsuda's stories from this collection, Smartening Up. You can read it for free on Granta Magazine's website, and I'll post a link. Incidentally, when I asked a minute ago who doesn't love a good ghost story, the answer is actually me. I will not be covering Japanese horror books because I am a coward. If you would like to know more about Japanese horror novels, do let me know on Twitter or by contacting me through the website, and I could try to arrange a guest episode if there's enough interest. As always, if you want to read along with us, you can find our translations available on readjapaneseliterature.com. I've been using Anthony Chambers' edition. Next time, Japan opens to the West and begins the process of rapid modernization. We'll take a look at the beginnings of modern Japanese literature, especially the work of Natsume Suoseki and his famously cynical cat. If you want to offer feedback or suggestions, please tweet us at, at @readJapaneseLit or contact us through the website. A special thank you to Adam Sola for production assistance. Thank you to the Japanese Literature Twitter community and the Japanese Literature group on Facebook. Thank you to producer Kime K H A I M, for today's music at kaimmusic and kaimmusic.com.